This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. Listening to Rock and or Roll, and on today's episode, I present to you an interview I conducted with Jonathan Paley, one half of the Paley brothers. Jonathan and his brother Andy. Jonathan and his brother Andy existed as a duo, as a group, for a few years there in the late 70s, but Jonathan bore witness to a lot of history over the course of the 70s, as you will hear on today's episode from accidentally wandering at the CBGBs with Jonathan Richmond and discovering a band called Television on stage, to auditioning for the Heartbreakers with Johnny Thunders, Richard Hell, and Jerry Nolan, to recording with the Ramones and Brian Wilson, to being produced by Phil Spector, not to mention the story of the Paley Brothers who recorded a power pop classic for Sire Records in 1978 and were working on what could have been an amazing follow-up record that never came to be, but many of the songs that would have ended up on that second Paley Brothers album eventually came out on a CD called The Paley Brothers The Complete Recordings in 2013. It's a great compilation and definitely worth checking out. After The Paley Brothers, Jonathan went on to join the Boston band The Nervous Eaters, whose demos were produced by Rick Ocasek, and he explains why Rick Ocasek did not end up producing the Nervous Eaters album that was released by Elektra Records. Anyways, I hope you enjoy this trip down memory lane with Jonathan Paley. The thing that happened with the Paley brothers, it was a combination of a lot of circumstances, but if we had gone on to make a second album, I think I think we probably would have had you know, some success, certainly more success than we did with the first album. The, how close were you to a second album? Because, the yeah, the songs on the CD that would have been for the second album are great, and it really seems like yeah. it would have been a great record. Well, I think, you know, in hindsight, of course, you know, I took a lot of responsibility for that not happening. But there were things going on, and, and I and, and in hindsight, I, I should realize, you know, I, I can do all this other stuff and do a Family Brothers do a second Paley Brothers album, which is what I should have done. I was doing other stuff. My brother was doing other stuff. And as, you know, time went by, you know, it wasn't like even really a conscious thing. Because we, we, we were still working on stuff. So we were, you know, he was, he was involved with other bands and other projects, and I was involved with other bands and other projects. And we just, and, and it was all, there was a certain level of, of, um, uh, I don't know how to put this, but I was, you know, I, I don't know I wanted to do something else. I wanted to do something different at that point. But, you know, but looking back at it now, it was, a, you know, I should have just realized, hey, I can do this and do all these other things. And, and of course, you know, it's, it's that, you know, it's 40 whatever years ago. So I was happy when we were able to actually get the, you know, the, the, the stuff that wasn't released and put it out. There's actually a lot more. 
Yeah. We have we have more stuff that still that still hasn't seen the light of day, and I hope it will someday. But my brother's he's very busy, and he's got all this stuff he's doing. You know, I'm not really in the music business anymore, but I'm hoping that we at some point will be able to do another release of other Haley Brothers stuff that, that that hasn't been released previously. So, like one thing, it's well, you guys were kind of ahead of the curve in terms of there was this explosion more like 79 to 81 where well i guess i th- I, th- I always thought part of it was because the knack got so huge and the record labels just signed everybody but it seems like power pop also came out of the punk scene and obviously you guys were kind of connected to the punk scene you were on sire records and you played at cbgb's and stuff right what was your connection to the punk scene all right so let me let me let me so back i don't know you know about the sidewinders yeah i have that record yeah okay so andy andy had was in the sidewinders that album came out i think in 71 or 72 yeah and prior to that he was in catfish black which was the you know the seeds of the of the uh sidewinders and he's and he's been performing you know professionally since he was you know very young i mean you know he started out as a drummer he's one of the one of the best drummers I've ever heard still is. And he, and he was also a songwriter. He's been a songwriter since he was a kid. He wrote a song when he was like six or seven years old. It was actually recorded by Tom Glazer came out on 78 in the fifties. <laughs> but Andy's been writing songs for a long, long, long time. And he's been playing for a long time. He became one of the best front men you've ever seen. When he was fronting the sidewinders, he was, absolutely incredible you know so i grew up you know plus we had two older sisters that were record collectors when we were kids i grew up you know this music and you know the am radio and everything and when i was about you know 10 or 11 actually younger even like nine i was watching a rerun of ozzy and harriet on tv and ricky nelson and the band came on and played traveling man i said to my mom and dad i want a guitar for my birthday my birthday's in December, so being a child of December, your birthday present is often combined with your Christmas present. And uh, sure enough, they got me a little three-quarter size nylon string guitar. And I got a book of chords, and I started learning how to play, listening to like old records of my sisters. And when I was about let's see, 12 years old, we moved to Brooklyn, New York. Prior to that, we lived in a very, very small town in upstate New York. So we moved to Brooklyn. Uh, when I was maybe, let's see, 14, I, you know, I, I'd been playing guitar for a while. I'd listened to all the oldies stations, all the old records. I knew all this music. I used to listen to the oldies. I forget what the, what it was in New York City, but, um, so this friend of mine told a friend of his, oh yeah, this guy, kid Jonathan, you know, he can play okay. Cause they, they were, they had a band, they were starting a band and it was an oldies band, but these guys were all like, in their like late twenties and maybe even early thirties. And they were like, they were actual honest to God greasers, you know, they were from like back in the day mm-hmm. and they were, you know, now they're all like had jobs and some of them probably had kids and stuff, but they were getting, they were getting this band together to do some gigs at this local bar, the red coach on seventh Avenue in Brooklyn. So they, they needed a bass player. I didn't own a bass, but my friend did. And he told them, he said, this kid can do it. So he lent me his bass, and I did probably, I don't know, maybe 10 gigs with these guys at this bar playing old doo-wop stuff and old, you know, Buddy Holly and some, you know, like Dion and the Belmonts. And, you know, and these guys were like, yeah, how do you know all this stuff? I mean, you're, you're just a kid. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I listen to old music. I like, I like old rock and roll and, and old stuff. So that was my first gig. And that band was called Dig It and the Doo-Ops. <laughs> and, and then, you know, during this whole time, my brother, my brother was around that time, he started to do, you know, Catfish Black and then the Sidewinders. I was in high school and the Sidewinders got signed by RCA and they put out that record, which was okay, but I mean, it wasn't representative of the band. They, they, they were one of the best live bands, you know, you've ever seen. I mean, they, and they were like, they were in that whole scene the Maxes and, um, you know, and, and up in Boston. Uh, and then when I graduated high school, 
Andy and I actually drove across country that summer from New York out to uh, L.A. We spent the summer out in L.A. That's a whole other long story, but it's just it, it, a lot of stuff happened. So anyway, we, the whole way, you know, back and forth across the country, you know, we're singing along. We're going, you know, finding these radio stations. We're singing with each other, and, and then, you know, we, we should maybe we should, you know, do some you know stuff together. And it's like that'd be great. That'd be fantastic. So. You get back to New York. I, I was starting college at Brooklyn College. Andy went up to back up to Boston. And what happened was there was a, a gig that Jonathan Richmond was doing at the kitchen. And this was like 1970, early 75, I guess. And Andy was playing with him, and they asked me to play with him as well. It was like, a, you know, I don't know, four or five evenings there. We were walking up. This was down in Soho. We were walking up. Uptown, and we and we stumbled across CBGBs. I'd never heard of the place before. Yeah, and and we went in, and television was playing. Wow, and it was funny because Jonathan Jonathan Richmond, <laughs> he was he stuffed napkins in his ears and was and hanging out his ears and was walking back and forth like with his hands up like like you know indicating that he, he was too loud he didn't like the music <laughs> anyway i i started talking to um richard lloyd you know i said yeah I'm, you know i play guitar you know and i'm i'm i'm, I'm starting the band and i you know at that point actually i was i i was playing i did like a couple of block parties and stuff with my with my friend steve warren who's a bass player and um billy pappas a guy uh, he played drums and you know, just doing oldies, and then I said to Steve, I said, you know, I really, want, I, you know, I want to do a band. I want to put a band together. Yeah. So I, 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 I started playing. I, I did a couple of gigs just solo, not at CBGBs. It was, I can't even remember the name. This one place in particular. It was like an auditorium. And there was maybe like twenty people in the audience. And I just sang, you know, I sang some old oldies, and that was it. And then. I, I got this band together with Steve Warren and a guy named Barry Marshall, who was in a band called The Marshalls. Have you ever heard of The Marshalls? I don't know. I don't. I mean, okay. I don't know. I think so. Well, you should look into them because they they put out some records and they they were also very poppy, but also rock and roll. Okay. Um, uh, all brothers and sisters actually. Um, so uh, so so Barry came down to New York. We rehearsed in the basement of my parents' house in Brooklyn, and then we started doing some gigs, opening for television, and uh, and some other bands. And then, and uh, you know, I originally wanted to call the band Johnny and the T-Birds, and my brother was like, "No, no, no, man, that's he's a, he, even though he wasn't in the band, he was, you know, I, I because he was my older brother and I'd been in the music business, I, you know, of course." Took everything he said, you know, very seriously. Yeah. <laughs> and he said, "Call the band Mon." I said, "What? Call it Mon?" And what the heck, what the hell is that? You know, M O N G Mon. <laughs> so I was like, "Okay." So we called ourselves Mon, which is like probably the worst band name in the history of, of music. <laughs> and and we uh, and we did for about you know God, several months. We were playing gigs all over New York: CBGBs, Maxes, Zeps. Mothers, eighty-two, uh, all you know, opening for everybody. And it was during this time when you know, everybody would hang around at all these bars. So Johnny Thunders says, "Hey, hey uh, you know, we're looking for a guitar player. I want you to come down and and uh, you know, see if, see if it works out." So I was like, "Okay." So I go to the rehearsal space and learn their songs. It was Richard, you know, it was Richard Hell. It was Richard Hell, Johnny Thunders. Jerry Nolan, <laughs> and I learned, uh, you know, Pirate Love and Hurt Me and Blank Generation. And, um, and in fact, we were doing Blank Generation. Wow. And Richard goes, Richard goes, hey, John, do you think any, any, you know, background vocals you could do? And, you know, I said, well, I don't know. And I'm just like, so going, so he would never acknowledge it, but I'm the one that came up with that in one of the rehearsals. Wow. So we rehearsed, and then he said, hey, hey, you know, come back uh, like the day after tomorrow. We're going to have another rehearsal. Okay. So I come back again, and um, as I was walking in, 
who comes walking out but carrying a guitar case, Chris Stein, yeah. all dressed up, wearing his like platform boots. So he had been rehearsing with him too. Mm. So then, so we rehearsed again, you know, I, I was, and John, you know, Johnny, Johnny liked the way I play guitar. He was like, man, how do you do that? I'll do some, do that, do that, do some more of that. You know, I was playing a um, Harmony Meteor. Great guitar. I wish I still had that guitar. Hollow body, single cutaway, which is just like the most powerful fucking pickups. You just put your finger anywhere on the neck and get instant feedback. It's just a great guitar with a Bigsby on it. So I go back for a third time, third rehearsal. And while we're rehearsing, um, Bob Gruen comes to the door and he starts taking some pictures. And he goes, hey, man, you know, let's go out on the fire escape. So Bob goes out on the fire escape. Richard goes out. Johnny goes out. I'm, I'm putting my, my foot up on the radiator to go out through the window. And Jerry Nolan grabs me, grabs me by the shoulder from behind, pulls me back. He says, no, not you. So they go out there, and that's that famous picture where they're on the fire escape, where it's Richard Hell, Johnny Thunders, and Jerry Nolan all on the fire escape. And I'm on the inside. <laughs> I'm back inside watching them do this. I was like, okay, I didn't figure what's going on. So then I get a call from Richard, you know, a day later or something. He's like, you know, this isn't going to work. You know, Jerry, I said, what, what's going on? You know, why not? Because Jerry doesn't, Jerry doesn't want you in the band. I was like, why? He said, I don't know. He says, he doesn't want you in the band. So they had their first gig. At, it was shortly at, thereafter at Canterbury in, in Queens. And I went down there because I was still hoping to get to be in the band. And they did the gig as a trio. And, you know, I did a, you know, I figured, okay, well, and after that, I'm not going to be in the band. So, so I went back to doing Mon. And I actually opened for them a couple of times as mom and then you know walter walter joined the band and walter was a really nice guy i you know, loved walter just passed away recently yeah you know so i i mean I, you know because of that band i mean i i knew all those people and i'd open for most of them and, and i you know it was everybody all the same people would hang out at the same clubs every night it was you know i mean i mean not the same clubs. i mean you go from club to club to club but it was all the same people and, and and so around this time, uh, the Sidewinders, well, the Sidewinders broke up in probably 73, maybe early 74. So Andy and I, you know, we started doing, the reason we were at, also at the kitchen was because Arthur Russell, you know who Arthur Russell is? Rings a bell, but. Arthur Russell is a very famous kind of quirky singer-songwriter um, who has a huge, huge cult following. Okay. Anyway, he was running the kitchen. He was running the kitchen, uh, um, and he had a TAC four track, and uh, and you met him. I guess you met him through Jonathan Richmond, and and so we we started recording demos there, and and it was a beautiful room. It was just this huge loft, so it had a wonderful natural echo, and we recorded a bunch of demos there, and then we also did some up in Boston, and we started sending them out, sending them around. And we got some, you know, there was some interest here and there. And then somehow we got it to Seymour at Sire. And Seymour loved loved our stuff. And he came to see us up in Boston. So he signed us. And, and, and you know, we were very, very different from most of what was getting signed at that time. This was before the Talking Heads. It was, you know, it was just after the Ramones. But it, but in a way, they were very to me. The Ramones are power pop. They're very power pop. Yeah. You know, Sheena is a punk. I mean, uh, uh, Rockaway Beach. It's, you know, it's it's a power pop song. And Joey Joey was just an encyclopedia of old music. I mean, he he knew all every old record, everything about it. You know. Yeah. Who sang it? Who produced it? You know, where it was done? What label it came out? And how how high it went on the charts? And he could and he knew every every word to all the lyrics. And he loved that all that old stuff. He, you know, he once told me after Rock and Roll High School, because we did that, you know, we did that thing with the with the Ramones, because you know Joey was in the hospital uh, when they were out in L.A. and we were recording the Paley Brothers album, and Seymour came up with the idea of doing "Come On, Let's Go," and it was Dee Dee, Tommy, and um, Johnny at Brothers Studio with us, and we did that, you know, that version, which is one of my favorite records that I ever did. Well, come on, 
And later on, Joey's, you know, he was talking with Joey. He goes, you know, you know that um, I can't do his voice, but <laughs> you know, um, I want. He said that 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 cut was his favorite cut on the record. And I don't know if he was just being nice to me or whatever, but it meant a lot to me. And um, yeah, I love that record. So as far as the the punk connection with power pop, you know, once again, these are broad terms. I mean. You know, in 1975, nobody was calling it punk rock. And so, you know, that's my connection with this, with so-called punk. I mean, it went on from there. I mean, I went, you know, the Nervous Eaters, I did, you know, two albums with the Nervous Eaters, uh, played, played with them longer than the Paley Brothers existed, actually. And we, we toured with everybody that was around and opened for everybody that came through the Northeast. And I played with a bunch of other people. Uh, and there's a whole connection with Jonathan Richmond and Patty Smith. And, you know, my brother worked a lot with both of them. And I worked a little with both of them. You know, Andy became a, you know, a, a producer. And he's produced everybody from Little Richard and Brenda Lee and, and uh, Jerry Lee Lewis and Brian Wilson, uh, you know, up through you know, people like the, the Bluebells or Richard X. Heyman or um, any, you know, what's his name, John Wesley Harding. Yeah. He produced um, Greenberry and, Woods, right? I love that. Greenberry Woods, yeah. yeah. Yep. He's done, he worked with everybody, you know, for, I mean, and, and, I, and I was lucky enough to be included in some of it. Um, but I, you know, then I, I really left the business for, let me see, 1986, I, through a weird set of circumstances, I ended up leaving the country and spending the next four years crewing on sailboats all over the world. Came back to America in late 1990. Uh, and at that point, Andy was like a staff producer at Warner Brothers. And he, you know, he was asking us, I, did, I would come in and work with him when he wanted me to. I, and then it was funny, I ran into uh, an old guy that I knew, friends from Boston, who was out here in L.A., and we played together for a little while, did some recording, and, and because of that, I kind of met with some other people, and now and then I would do some recording, or, you know, some, a little bit of producing, nothing ever really any, went anywhere, and then I was also, for a year or two, doing, you know, I was like a low-level A&R guy at Sire, Seymour hired me back, and I got one band signed. Uh, it ended up coming out on Egg Records. Didn't really go anywhere. I was skirt. And then, and you know, or, and since then, I mean, I've been doing a lot of other things. I mean, right now I work as a uh, a set medic. You know, I, I became an emergency medical technician and a nurse. I worked in emergency rooms for 15 years and got into this set medic thing where I work on TV and movies. And that's where I am right now, actually. I'm sitting in the uh, medic office on a soundstage in Santa Clarita. Uh, for a TV, cable TV show. Now, what, now, getting back to Power Pop, what else do you want to know? Well, <laughs> well, one thing I wanted to ask you about <clears throat> was Earl Mankey because I'm a huge fan of a number of records that he produced around that time, like The Pop and 2020 and The Three O'Clock. And it, it seems like he was an amazing producer, but all of the records he did sound different. They have they sound great in similar ways, but they're all very different. So I wonder what it was like it's working fun. with Earl. Well, it's funny that you mentioned Earl because Earl, I, I recorded my daughter's record, "Ballad of a Teenage Queen," with Earl at Earl's studio, which is in Thousand Oaks. Now Earl's Earl is great. Uh, he, he's a wonderful engineer and 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 is a great producer. The the, the problem that we had with the Paley Brothers was that. We, I, I think that we needed somebody that was going to be more of, more in charge, that would have said, no, this is the way it's going to be, and had a more objective viewpoint. Because we needed somebody at that time to kind of, you know, tell us what to do. You know, for the large part, it's my brother's music. My brother, you know, is very talented. And he's very, and he's very driven, and I think that he. You know, was unable to kind of like step away and take, you know, step back and take a look at things from an objective point of view, especially at that time, because um, he had very, very definite ideas about what he wanted to do. 
And and that, and I think Earl was very accommodating. Earl's such a nice guy. He's so laid back. So it was kind of I think I think that combination plus with my naivety at the time because I I had you know I, I the only experience I had had you know was was what I had done you know as far as recording was you know with my brother doing demos and my really my only experience on stage had been with uh, at that point Mong and you know. The, the oldies band that I had played in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. So Earl, Earl, you know, I think, I think Earl, I don't know. I, I have to ask him, but uh, I, I imagine he would probably say, you know, I should have probably, I'm sure, you know, taken a little more control or maybe I should, or maybe, you know, it should have been done this way or that way. But I, I love Earl. deciding that you know I wanted to move on from the Paley brothers although you know it's like I said in hindsight that was a stupid decision I should have just said okay I'll do this but I'll but I'll also do these other things but um, you know Phil was uh, you know we spent over two weeks maybe three weeks going over to his house every day and you know standing next to Lowry Oregon while he sat there and played the same song over and over and over and over and over and over. Um, Was there a gun involved? Hours. No, no, not at all. And, you know, <laughs> okay. and, I, and, I, and I know he's, I, I, I absolutely believe that he, that he killed that woman, but I, I, I don't believe it was murder. I think he was playing with his gun like he's done for 50 something years. Right. And finally one of them went off. Right. You know, which is bound to happen when you play with a gun yeah. and you're drinking. Yeah. You know, that's the other thing with Phil is that when he's sober, when he's sober, he was the nicest, sweetest, funniest, smartest guy, talented guy. But he, two glasses of wine, and it was like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Right. He was just, he would become this abusive, horrible, nasty little prick. <laughs> oh, God. And it was totally, totally the alcohol. That's, you know, and it was, it's really sad, yeah. really, really sad Yeah. because he's, because when he's sober, just, just a wonderful, wonderful guy and incredibly talented. Baby, I can't let you go. I need and I want and I love you so. So if I make you sad and blue, you know.
there's a, a lot of stuff that my brother recorded with Brian Wilson, which I don't know if it'll ever see the light of day. Some of it you can find online. It's like bootleg. But, um, you know, Brian, the stuff that he did with my brother is some of it is like the best stuff he's done since that sounds. relationship working together and uh you know it, it kind of i don't know the exact circumstances of why it's not ongoing but i, I think it you know it has something to do with uh brian's wife and and just having you know someone having steering where what you know what's going on with brian's career and his music and everything uh, which is kind of what brian has always had you know anything outside of the creative process or the recording process he has always pretty much had somebody else in charge first it was his father then it was his wife then it was dr landy and now it's his new wife that's kind of how he how he's lived which is you know that's his life and he's you know when he's in the studio when he's writing songs it's he's in control I think when it comes to business decisions or, um, you know, any, anything that ha- has to do with, you know, that involves money or, you know, planning a tour or, you know, that kind of thing, I think he feeds control to somebody else. I mean, yeah, and Mike Love, I think, you know, for a long time also had a lot to say about what was going on. But when Andy and he were together, you know, it was great. I got to work on a lot of that stuff and, and it was so much fun. Yeah. And he was, and he, and he, you know, both of them together in the studio, you know, just uh, getting stuff off each other, and you know, and uh, it was, it was, it was. I felt very, very honored to be able to uh, be involved in some of that, and hopefully, hopefully, it'll see the light of day someday. Yeah. So, were you were and you then, happy with how the Paley's record turned out? How it sounded? Uh, no. No, I was. I mean, some of it, some of it, I was. Some of it, I don't. there were aspects of certain things that I was. I mean, my vocals, I'm not happy with on a lot of the stuff, because I, because I wasn't really, you know, the thing that like Andy, Andy had been in the business for a while, and he'd written. He was a writer, and he was a performer, as a frontman. I mean, he was just a, a terrific frontman and communicator. Uh, I could sing technically, but I was, I could not perform. Like Andy could, and I, 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 you know, I listen to those that that especially that record now. Some of the songs like like Tell Me Tonight, which is a great song, but I, you know, it's like it's like I'm, I I I I didn't know how to put more into it. I didn't know how to deliver, I guess, the emotion really, um, and I think a lot of my singing on the record is I don't know how to describe it. It's not like it's it's not stiff. It's not flat. It's just, it's almost like they're just not, like I'm not conveying emotion, which was something that I, you know, I didn't, I didn't learn for a long time. And by the time I had, it's kind of like, <laughs> well, now I'm not, now I'm not, in a, now I'm not, you know, a vocalist anymore. I mean, that, that that's the major thing about the record that really bugs me. I like, you know, I listen to it now. It's not so bad, but, it's just I think, yeah, I, I could have done so much better. I could have been so much better on that record. It was inexperienced to a large degree, and I think if we if we had continued on, it would it would have gotten better. I mean, those later recordings are better. To me, like 
Meet the Invisible Man and Boomerang, you know, were, are, are great recordings and, and probably, you know, would have done something. Listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late, and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well, I could make a run to the store, or I could make one of my new factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything Factor Meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor Meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code pantheon50 to get 50% off. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain again with something every podcast listener and music junkie needs to hear. As I'm sure you can guess, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I also listen to a lot of music, so having high-quality headphones and earbuds are absolutely critical to my day. Oh, and I have numerous pairs. In fact, I have a junk drawer of used devices that have bitten the dust, so I've tried them all. Recently, I was sent a pair of earbuds by Raycon, and the first thing I noticed was the cost. Uh, looks like their products are about half the price of other premium brands. Okay, that's cool. And the reviews seem pretty stellar. Okay, checks that box. So I got my Raycon Everyday Earbuds, a nice packaging to open, and what I immediately noticed were the pack of ear tips for sizing. Uh, I'll tell you, I have small ear canals. Uh, I know, a flaw. So to see choices for the best fit, uh, especially while exercising, <laughs> oh yeah. And yes, they were immediately comfortable. Sound quality was great too. Plus I have three EQ options that I love because I like more bass in my music and less in the podcasts. Eight hours of playtime for the battery is great as well. Surround sound, noise canceling, and awareness mode all included. I think I'm in business, and I just realized I've had them in all day. Like I said, super comfortable. Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Some great playing on the Paley Brothers album. I mean, uh, 
some of the stuff that uh, Eric Rose did is just really good. Some of the songs, the drum sound is great. Some of them I, I'm not so happy with. It's not like you, you expect to make a perfect record, you know, especially being the person who's on that record. It's, it's hard for me to say, I'm, you know, oh, yeah, I'm happy with this record. And, yeah. I, and, I, and it's, it's happened to me other times. I mean, when I, the, the first Nervous Years album that we did was, you know, not very good. I don't know if you're familiar with that record. The yeah, I, ha- I have it. Yeah, the yeah. one with the, one with the bite rep- that's got bites out of the cover, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yes. It's not representative of the band at all. The demos that we did for that record were a hundred times better than that record. And that's a whole another story because it was you know Rick Ocasek produced the demos and he was supposed to produce the record. They're they're managed. You know the cars were managed by this guy Fred Lewis. <clears throat> who also at that time was managing us, the Nervous Eaters. And then the cars wanted to get rid of Fred, and they had a big legal battle with him, and they got rid of him. And because of that, we couldn't have Rick produce the record. So we ended up with Harry Maslin. And Harry's a great guy and a good producer, but he had no idea what the Nervous Eaters were about. Yeah. And uh, so the, consequently, and plus at that time, Steve Cataldo, who was the Nervous Eaters, he was the, you know, the, the guy. I think he was very intimidated by the whole thing and was uh, also trying to, I think he felt like he couldn't, he didn't want to really be like the nervous years were because he wanted to, you know, he wanted to sell records. He wanted to be more mainstream, but he didn't realize that if he had done the record, like we did the demos, it probably would have, it probably would have been a huge record. And um, so, no, I went through that with that, you know, that album. And then later on, we made a good record with, you know, Ace of Hearts, but that was you know, years later, you know, I've done records, I mean, I mean, a lot of the records I've been involved. I mean, I produced the first couple shrapnel records, and I, you know, I mean, I, they were okay. But you know, I mean, and listen to them now, it's like, yeah, that's pretty good. But I mean, even at the time, I was like, I was not completely happy with them. Shrapnel. Uh, same with, thing with the with, dog mags. I did. I did. Excuse me. Shrapnel with Dave Windorf, the New Jersey band. Yeah. Yeah. Did Tom, you yeah, produce Tom that that I EP? Produced, I produced Combat Love, oh. Big Free Line. I'm not sure if those are on. Now, the EP came out after that, after those two singles. Oh, there's this, there's this, one of my favorite songs ever is um, Master of My Destiny. Oh, yeah, that. no, that's not me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's one of the great, one of the great songwriting teams that you'll see, like, in, like, uh, like, you know, in the songwriting credits, Windorf Rabinowitz. <laughs> <laughs> It just rolls off the tongue. What was it like um, watching Dave Windorf become Monster Magnet? <laughs> was that? Well, you know what? After Shrapnel, I, I, you know, I just kind of like, you know, I, I lost touch. With it. I actually I saw Danny Danny Rabinowitz, who then called himself Danny Ray. Yeah. Uh, later on, when he was a musical director for Ronnie Spector, and he, you know, toured with her. Uh, but I hadn't seen I hadn't seen Windorf since oh boy, probably nineteen eighty. Right, like it's been a long time. But I saw a picture of him recently. You know, he's got the he's aged, but we all have. I have and that, I, and I never really listened to Monster Magnet, so I don't even know. I guess they're kind of like, what are they like a heavy metal band? Yeah, like stoner rock. You know, like really. I don't know. I have that. I have a record called the Dirt Records compilation. I think Combat Love is on there. Yeah, well, that's that's me. You know, it's, and uh, you know, Legs was their manager at the time. And when he, when he, he said, "Hey, John, I want you to produce this," record. I was like, "Great!" I said, "But listen, you've got to put my name. Uh, the most important thing for me is that it says produced by Jonathan Paley on the label." So of course, the record comes out. It doesn't say produced by anybody. Uh-huh. And then when the sleeve comes out, it says produced by Jonathan Paley and Legs McNeil. <laughs> so I was, you know, you know, I mean, I love Legs. I, you know, I actually worked with Legs recently, but. Um, you know, that was like, God damn it. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but, um, yeah, so yeah, I also produced um, a couple of songs by the Dogmatics, Fair Street, and uh, Sure Don't Feel Like Christmas Time. Um, I did Band 19, Richie Parsons Band. Uh, what else? Oh, well, Skirt. And, you know, I played with a bunch of different people back, you know, back then. Um, before I before I got on that boat and <laughs> took off in '86.
when we were kids, when we were little kids, we lived in this very, very small town, less than 100 people. One road, one gas station, one stop sign, two churches. That, that was it. Surrounded by dairy farms. And we would listen to WTRY and WPTR up in upstate New York. Back then, AM radio played everything. They played everything. They played Perry Como, but they play the Kinks. You know, they play Frank Sinatra and they play the Rolling Stones, you know, on the same station. And, and like I said, we had two older sisters uh, who, you know, had been collecting records since the mid 50s. And, you know, and, and then you know, he did his thing with this, with the Catfish Black and the Sidewinders. And uh, if you listen to that Sidewinders album, the song Rendezvous, which is on that record, it's also on the Pale, one of the Paley Brothers. Uh, uh, it was on one of the EPs, but also on the compilation. You know, that was, he, he wrote that, I think when he wrote that, he had, like, Be My Baby in mind or something like that. But, but then at the same time, like, you know, we, you know, we, we covered, you know, we, we did Tell Me Tonight, which was really like an attempt at a disco record almost. And then you had Down the Line, you know, Buddy Holly cover, which was like, you know, kind of yard beardy in a way. And we, they, you know, I heard the Bluebirds sing, which was, you know, very, very almost, you know, bluegrassy. I met a girl out in the hills who gave my lonely heart a thrill. Her just like a breath of spring And when I looked into her eyes I thought of bluest summer skies When I held her hand in mine I heard the bluebirds sing They sang of wondering Wondering if he loves her Will she marry Marry if he asks her Will her heart be Heart be true for him for For him forevermore And when she's lonely Lonely is near her When there's sad on end until she promised we would wed we planned on being married in the spring all through the long cold winter months it seemed like spring would never come and every gloomy winter day i heard the bluebirds sing they sang of waiting waiting for the flower and of counting So it wasn't like we were specifically aiming at, you know, bubblegum or aiming at country pop or aiming at, you know, R&B. But I think there are elements of all of those things on that album and, in the, and on the EPs and the singles that we did. So it's, it's, you can't really, I mean, you know, come out and play is almost like a Four Seasons type, you know, thing going on there, although not lyrically so much, but. You know, with the if you listen to that, which was produced by Jimmy Iovine, by the way, um, and that was Jimmy. Uh, the, the stuff that Jimmy Iovine did with the Paley Brothers was the first production credit that Jimmy Iovine ever had. Prior to that, he was strictly an engineer. Wow. Yeah, I can't say that we were aiming, or Andy was aiming, to make a bubblegum record, but um, I would have been very happy 
that, you know, to have a successful bubblegum record. And I would have been very happy to have a successful power pop record. I'd been very happy to have a successful record of any kind. Yeah. <laughs> you well, you, you seem to be set up for success in a lot of ways. This is something that I hear so many times. I've heard this so many times. The Paley brothers had to work really hard not to make it. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> like we had everything going for us. And we still didn't. We still didn't hit a thing. And in a way, you know, we had we had a lot going for us. We had Andy's talent. Um, we were both very good-looking young men. Andy was a great performer. We did have a lot going for us, and we had the backing of a, of a record company. You know, they they really tried hard. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a combination of a lot of things. But you know, it's it's the old thing. You know, if I knew then what I knew now, yeah, you know, it would have been very different. But yeah, that's history. Well, that's history. Well, you know, when I first got the uh, the complete recording CD and I heard songs like Meet the Invisible Man and Running in the Rain, I was blown away. So those are very like those feel like recordings you could have put out on a record. Like, were you actually recording for a second record? Those aren't demos, right? No, they they were they were you know they were recordings that we had started, and then you know Andy finished them up. Okay. And and they and they sat you know they sat for I don't know how many years, and then you know when when I you know when when we were first approached to do that compilation CD, Andy Andy did not want to do it. Yeah. He was busy with other stuff, and I said, "Look, Andy, come on, man! It's time, you know, you know, all this, all you know, that stuff that we never put out, and you know, the live stuff and everything. Come on, man!" So he wrote, so he reluctantly agreed to it. But then once once he started going through the old stuff, we had to you know search around for a lot of this stuff. He got very very into it, and um, and there's a lot of remixing and a lot of that stuff, which is fine. You know, that's right. okay. Right. No, the, yeah, I mean, especially Meet the Invisible Man and Boomerang to me were, you know, just, yeah, th- those could have been, those could I think they could have been hit records, especially Boomerang. Tired of me one day So you tried to 
almost Connie James and the Shondell revisited type thing. Meet the Invisible Man is, is probably my favorite Paley Brothers recording. It's long, but I love that it's long. It's almost, I think it's six minutes long. Yeah, it's um, not It's but, not at all what I was expecting, <laughs> you know. No. And, the, uh, and, you know, the Spectre track, you know, to me, it's, it's great as a document, of, you know, I mean, but I mean, it's not the, it's not the greatest record Phil Spector ever did by any any stretch of the imagination, you know. But there, but the, yeah, like I mean, running in the rain. There, there's and the thing is, there's there's different versions. There's a whole different version of uh, running in the rain. It's a whole different version of um, Sapphire Eyes. You know, I, I, with me singing lead on Sapphire Eyes, it's, which is almost entirely in falsetto, and I really like it. But Andy Andy preferred the one that he sang, which is which is also really good. Uh, but there, you know, there are there's a lot more stuff. The demos and unrefinished, you know, unfinished recordings that I'm hoping that we can uh, get to. Andy's still very busy, and to convince him to do another another compilation will probably take a lot of work. But I'm, um, you know, I'm, I'm gonna, you know, when he has time, hopefully, we'll be able to, uh, yeah, revive some of that other stuff. How close? Were you to having a second album with Sire? Was it close? We I, we probably could have done it at any time, but I, you know, it's I I really I bear a large responsibility for this not happening because what happened was I came home from doing that Spectre session, and Steve Cataldo from the Nervous Eaters said, "Hey Jonathan, yeah, I we want you to join the band. You know, we're going to be doing a record soon and everything." And you know, so I, so I was like, "Okay, great." Because at that time, you know, the Paley Brothers, you know, after after we did the first record, we did it. We did you know a little bit of touring, not much, but we opened for Sean Cassidy, you know, Madison Square Garden and Toronto Stadium and the, all these hockey arenas, like big places. And our and our our rhythm section was the Nervous Eaters. Andy and I went out to record with Spectre. We did that, and then, you know, the the Eaters had you know they were get, they were getting signed to Electra and. Um, and Andy was also, he was, he was on the road with Patty Smith and he was on the road with Jonathan Richmond. So I said, well, I'm going to go, I'm, I'm going to go on the road with the, with the nervous eaters. I'm going to go record with them out in LA. So the Kelly brothers whole thing, you know, it kind of languished there. You know, like, like I said, in hindsight, what I should have done was, okay, let's do this nervous eaters thing. Hey, Andy, let's finish the Kelly brothers record. Seymour, put this out. But everybody you know all the all the parties involved in all these all these different sides and, and aspects of of this. We're doing so much, other, doing so many other things. It just kind of it just kind of like fell by the wayside. Yeah. And 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 Andy, you know, Andy had a lot going on, and I had stuff going on too. So it was Andy. You know, a- Andy was. You know, I mean, he he was so involved when he would get into another project. It was like the, that was like the driving thing that he was into then. So he was. If he was working with Jonathan Richmond, that's what he was concentrating on. If he was working with Patty Smith, that's what he was concentrating on. He wasn't going to, it wasn't like, let's go back and finish the Paley Brothers album. And and because he was, you know, having success at what he was doing, that was another, it wasn't like, it wasn't like he was not looking to finish the Paley Brothers album, but there was, it wasn't like, I mean, he had too much else going on to do that. Yeah. And and by the time that I, you know, the, you know, had finished, you know, the, gone up and down with the Nervous Eaters, I don't know. It's just that I, you know, at, at that point in my life, 1985, 86, I was like, I don't know, man. You know, this is. I, I was, you know, I was not real happy with what I was doing, and and and, and this and this opportunity was just kind of came up out of nowhere to get on this boat. I was supposed to be gone for a few months, and it ended up turning into four years, and and it was one of the most wonderful experiences of my life, but it, but that really kind of like changed a lot of things for me yeah and when i and when i came back when i came back to the united states the last boat i was on ended up at marina del rey in los angeles and i was walking around you know i'd been i'd been in the tropics for four years lifting anchors and hauling sails and you know i was like this you know just in incredible condition and I have long blonde hair and it's you know tan and and I'm walking around and somebody says, Hey, aren't you the guy from that show? And I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? 
you're the actor from that show, right? It's like, no, no, you're not an actor. You know, well, you should be. <laughs> <laughs> so, so like, so this guy, I keep talking to him. He's like, yeah, you, you should go to, you know, you should like, uh, you know, you could like, you know, go to this place and that place and they'll put you in the movies. I was like, really? I didn't know anything about the movie. Did so it was like Forrest Gump. I, you know, I, I, I went down to central casting and I ended up working, you know, working as an extra and a stand in and a body double. And, and once in a while as an actor for the next 10 years, that's what I did. And then through another weird set of circumstances, I ended up becoming an ENT and then I became a nurse and then I became a set medic. Yeah. So life, life takes you different places. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I always wonder with someone like you who was around Andy Warhol and Phil Spector and just around all this like history, like you talk about, Oh, I played a gig with Jonathan Richmond and then I walked down the street and saw television, you know? And like, are you yeah. ever just in line at the grocery store or something? And you're just like, None of these people, none of these people know. I was, so I'd come back to Los Angeles. It's about 19, I, I, so it's the early nineties. And I'm at, at my bro, I was staying with my brother in Los Feliz. So I go to this grocery store, to pick up some groceries. And I'm standing in line behind this guy and he's got a cast on his foot. And he turns to the side and says, holy shit, it's Billy Ficka drummer for television who I hadn't seen in, you know, I don't know, <laughs> since like the seventies. Yeah. I was like, Billy, he looks at me and he goes, Oh my God. Cause I, cause I looked a lot different. I mean, you know, in 1975, I weighed about 135 pounds and I was like, you know, smoking a pack of cigarettes and snoring Coke every day. And so I, <laughs> so I was a lot healthier. And is it but he recognized me like, Holy shit. Yeah. But no, I know what you're talking about. It's funny. Cause I worked on these sets and in fact, there was a, a couple of years ago, I was working on this show and I was I went by the wardrobe trailer and the guy's like steaming this t-shirt and it's a velvet underground t-shirt <laughs> yeah. for one of the actors to wear. I, you know, right. the show. And I was like, Oh man, who came up with that? You know, oh, that's really trendy. You know, the velvet underground. Wow. <laughs> and the guy got all offended <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah, you know, let me say something. So I pull out my phone. I go through my and I pull out this picture of me with with a bunch of other people and John Cale. I said, "You know, you know who any of these people are?" He's like, "No." And I said, "Well, that's John Cale from the Velvet Underground. That's Patty Smith. That's David Johansson from the New York Dolls. That's Dee Dee Ramone from the Ramones. And that's me." <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Thank you. All right, you guys are great. All right. I'm going to play guitar on this next one. Thank you. Hey, Jonathan, get back up here. Come on up. Hey, thank you. Going to do one called Felicia. Here we go. One, two, three, go. There goes Felicia with the walks of life. Who is Felicia with the dress of life? Blood like ash. I'd be a fool to ever let it go Oh honey, you kiss so fine Thrills I get up and down my spine She even loves me when we're on the ice And as my friends as to my whereabouts Will we believe you why you so nice I can't wait until the clothes arrive Oh honey, you make me feel good Even better than I thought you would That's right! Yeah. 